Thank you for tuning in to Sparks and Honey's Daily Culture Briefing. My name is Ben Grinspan, and today we're going to be looking at culture in the vertical using Q, our cultural intelligence platform, to unpack trends and changes in human behavior and the remaining bits of our business bets for 2022. Joining me today as my co-briefer is the wonderful Devery Velasquez. We're also joined by our in-house culture expert, Carrera Kernick. And today you can see we have a special guest joining us, a member of our advisory board, uh, and a man uh, who wears many hats in everything uh, ecological, Dr. Nathan Walworth. Uh, he is the VP of Science Strategy at Project Vesta, uh, which is a carbon removal company. Uh, welcome, uh, welcome back, I should say, Dr. Walworth. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So today we wanted to continue our conversation about business bet, our business bets. As you know, we've looked at a little bit of uh, some environmental themes, and today we're going to continue that again with a brand new executive uh, position that has been uh, gaining, I guess, some heat. We can say the chief heat officer, uh, which is a new position that uh, you know to, to have someone monitor the fact that well, you know, it's something like the past eight of the past ten years have been the hottest on record and we want to understand a little bit more about that position what it means where it came from perhaps where it's going to so let's dig into our elements of culture here uh life logic is our top element of culture i think this makes a ton of sense this is our one about the idea that uh it's a little bit of an amorphous one but it's the idea that functionally we we make different decisions uh uh and 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 uh, choose to uh, do different behaviors uh, based on sort of changing circumstance right so when you think about say uh, a massive heat wave hitting the Pacific Northwest with unprecedented temperatures, that's going to impact life logic. A couple of other ones that are pretty clear, sustainability, shifting soils, that's our one, uh, that's another sustainability focused one. Um, Debrie, I'm curious what elements of culture you think here are, are valuable for us to understand today about the specific role of the chief heat officer. I think that one that we're seeing a lot of as it pertains to this topic at large is moral imperative. Um, mm -hmm. In a lot of our business bets, also, I think that that's an EOC that's top of mind as it pertains to orgs um, sort of learning and exploring ways to humanize their business practices. Yeah, I'll take it back to what Camilla said on the very first of these briefing, Camilla Cruz, our chief strategy officer, who said every one of these business bets is built around uh, being better to other human beings. And that's why moral imperative and blurred responsibility are so important here. Um, so what is a chief heat officer, right? And why does the new role matter? Well, our friends and occasional uh, collaborators and partners over at the World Economic Forum are doing their part to understand this, looking into the future of the role of the chief heat officer. So four major cities, some in unexpected places, which we will get to, made uh, news in just the past couple months, uh, picking up the mantle and hiring people whose job uh, is directly to create solutions programs and raise alarms about a hotter climate and its impact on us all. Uh, quote, their purpose is to raise awareness of the extreme heat risks to protect the most vulnerable citizens within their city. Uh, they plan to coordinate short-term and long-term responses to heat waves, as well as implementing long-term risk reduction strategies. Um, now, around the globe, but also right here in North America, this role is more important than ever, as I was saying. The World Economic Forum tells us that North America experienced the hottest June and July ever on record, with temperatures soaring uh, 2.77 degrees Fahrenheit or 1.54 degrees Celsius above average. Worldwide temperatures in July 2021 were recorded at the highest level in more than 140 years at 62 degrees Fahrenheit or 16.7 degrees Celsius. A recent study by the Resilience Center and Vivid uh, Economics revealed that six times more Americans could die of extreme uh, heat deaths by 2050. And 
uh, as uh, most planning things are, there is an equal and important aspect of equity here too. The World Economic Forum tells us that when Miami appointed its chief heat officer, the mayor, uh, that uh, Mayor Daniela Levine Cava said, quote, we know extreme heat does not impact people equally. Poorer communities and black and Hispanic people bear the brunt of those public health impacts. Quote, almost every citizen has a traffic safety person, an air quality person. We think there might be a day when uh, most cities, particularly those uh, most impacted, have to look at heat issues, says Mayor, a Phoenix mayor, uh, Kate Galago, who also created the CHO position. So let me start with our guest and expert here, Dr. Walworth. Um, what is the balance here, I guess, in this new position, would you imagine, between climate science and social science? We've talked about blurred responsibility, the human aspect of this. But obviously, we also have to understand like the very important meteor meteorological impacts. Is this the kind of role that you imagine is 50% hard science and 50% human science? Or what's the, what's the ratio that you would expect this person have to do to, to uh, work on to, to do their job properly? Uh, yeah, thank you. It's, yeah, it's, it's really interesting to see this specific title surface and, and then the adoption of that title. Um, obviously, there's been broadly executive position sustainability, but I think, you know, uh, the word heat obviously is a very specific um, implication for uh, what, what that person uh, should be doing and thinking about. And yeah, I think um, the cultural and the social aspects are, are really interesting because, you know, in, in the past, the word climate has been pretty politically charged um, and actually transcending that um, into just the word heat. Uh, may just be, you know, kind of this politically agnostic recognition that, you know, the data is the data and that, you know, we kind of need both sides of the aisle to just um, uh, to to come up with ways to to mitigate uh, what's happening. So, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, in the beginning of the climate uh, crisis, let's say 20, 30 years ago, language wasn't really language and communications wasn't really uh, a focus and understanding how to mm. connect with people culturally because a lot of scientists were just trying to point at data. Uh, but now that we're seeing everything unfold, the chief heat officer uh, definitely has to step through um, based off where they are, based off what their constituents say, uh, have to step through and, and really understand how they're communicating um, and, and what they're doing with this role. So um, it's yeah. really interesting to, to start to see environmentalism subdivide in the executive position. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a wonderful point because this person is is both a, a science officer, as you pointed out, is integral as public health as the people tracking, you know, COVID-19 or, or whatever. But also, you're right, there's a whole PR aspect to it. You don't get a title like chief heat officer and not expect to talk about it a little bit. And I say this as a cultural strategist who always has to explain what that means. Um, <laughs> Carrera, let's talk politics here for a second. So I'll point out that Mayor Daniela Levine Cava is the mayor of Miami-Dade County. The mayor of Miami itself is Francis Suarez, who is a moderate Republican. I believe he has an okay record on climate change. But, um, you know, the thing about this new executive position, at least in politics, is that America's really polarized. So I guess my, my question is, what happens to the chief heat officer either in the government or in a nonprofit, or sorry, in a nonprofit or in a, in a business when it runs into that polarization buzzsaw? Do they have to be a political strategist as well? Yeah, you know, it's, it's hard because you would think that with heat, you know, it's something that would be widely felt and every year it gets hotter. It's something that, you know, you go outside and you feel the effects of it. Unfortunately, if we think of what happened with the CDC and Anthony Fauci during the pandemic, you know, this thing is still happening that everyone is feeling the effects of, there was still this polarization. So I, 
I do tend to like hesitate here. I do think that we will see polarization on this issue, uh, which is mm. incredibly unfortunate. So again, to your point, Ben, there there will be to there will need to be some political adroitness to how this um, how how this information gets um, you know told to people. Yeah. Well, the good news is a lot of people in Florida think the pandemic is over. So or never started. No, I'm kidding. Um, okay. <laughs> Uh, you know, Miami is the kind of place that's forward thinking that you imagine we do this. Um, I love the signal coming out of Sierra Leone. So, uh, Devery, tell us about Africa's first chief, chief heat officer. Yeah, so our next signal here from Bloomberg uh, points to Freetown, which is Sierra's, Sierra Leone's capital, um, which, like many others around the world, has been mentioned, um, is increasingly being threatened by dangerous temperatures. Um, in a study published in the scientific journal PNAS, last year found that extreme heat exposures in over 13,000 cities nearly tripled between 1983 and 2016, affecting 1.7 billion people total. The research found that the heat is, quote, highly unequal and severely impacts the urban poor. Um, Eugenia Carbo, who works as an advisor to Mayor Yvonne Aki-Sawyer, has been tasked with raising public awareness on heat of extreme heat, improving protection and responses to heat waves, and collecting, analyzing, and visualizing heat impact data across this city uh, of 1.2 million people. She says, quote, Cha climate change is in front of us now. The heat is already here and it's unbearable. Uh, what we're expecting, uh, experiencing in Freetown right now has never happened before. It's unprecedented. We need adaptation, not just mitigation. I need to make my city a safer, cooler place. In 2017, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change ranked Sierra Leone third after only Bangladesh and Guinea-Bissau on its list of countries most vulnerable to climate change. Many of these risks are concentrated in its capital and largest city, where a combination of civil war, climate change-induced crop failure, and rural poverty helped fuel explosive urbanization. And Anna Stainer, who is head of climate services at the University of Cape Town's climate system analysis group says that given the quote, vulnerable development context, unquote, of, American, uh, of African cities, quote, any increase in extremes of heat over time is going to have a huge impact more so than on develop, uh, developed cities. So cargo plans to com combat rising temperatures with the mix of infrastructural and policy changes. She's leading Freetown's project uh, to plant a million trees and build 48 urban gardens, uh, working with telecommunications companies to send out weather warnings and constructing cooling centers with shade and water in these slums. There's also a plan to improve sanitation by creating waste collection jobs for 800 youths. So I have a couple of questions here. Uh, Nate, I'm interested in your take on this first one. Um, so extreme weather, crowding, poor sanitation, and unregulated uh, construction are just some of the factors for slum settlements such as Sierra Leone taking such a huge hit right now in this global climate crisis. Um, and it can be super challenging for us maybe on the West or people who lived in developed cities, um, urban you know, uh, environments, uh, to sort of practice empathy or understand how how and, and what ways it's possible for us to help. Um, so what would you say just as like a piece of advice of how can we, you know, feel closer to this in, in terms of trying to make an impact, even though we're so far away? 
Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's tough in a way to, to kind of think, um, for a developed, a lot of developed uh, areas, um, what, what the true uh, gravity of the situation is. Um, I almost liken it a little bit to when, uh, the climate crisis sort of uh, first started and the, um, the poster child was kind of the polar bear, uh, which was really far away. And, you know, we walked outside and didn't really experience the polar bears, um, life experiences. Um, so, you know, I would say with this, um, you know, I'd say one of the, uh, one of, you know, the big things that we're watching and, um, you know, that we're thinking about is, uh, the role of climate, um, you know, climate movement and, and climate, uh, sort of refugees and, uh, climate migration. And I think that's, a, that's a big way to, to think about it. As, you know, one of the, the lines that you just said is that, you know, when, when extreme heat is happening and people get desperate, um, it cascades, um, across, um, all other sectors of society, uh, people need to survive. That's, you know, our, our, our basic instinct. And, you know, the, the biggest shifts that we're going to see, um, yes, you know, they're, they're potentially going to be uh, a lot of deaths, but um, you'll begin to see sort of a, a climate refugee um, swing that's going to happen uh, from developing to potentially developed countries. And if, if it's going to be in the um, kind of world of survival, you know, people are going to uh, migrate pretty desperately. So, you know, I, I would say just it it's um, it will affect developed areas eventually. And, you know, we're beginning to see the beginnings of um, sort of, you know, how that could happen. And over the next few years, um, you know, it's going to be really hard to actually predict, uh, you know, how it's going to unfold. But we know on some level it will and it's already causing conflict and things like that. So it's already cascaded into a lot of other areas of society and, and I think will continue to grow. Yeah, Carrera, quickly, I wanted to ask you, what what does this say um, about the future society society as a whole, you know, just across the world, like we're having to allocate or organizations are having to allocate resources and invest in this chief heat officer role. Um, why should this raise concern for people who still don't get it? Yeah, I think it also cuts to this idea of environmental racism and the need for environmental mm. intersectionality. But so many of our cities you know, the people that are being affected the most by this increased heat and the areas of the globe that are being affected the most by this increased heat are, are people of color or are people who live in poverty. So it's not the rich nations that are going to bear the brunt of it. It's it's countries like what we're talking about here in Africa. And so I think um, back to what you said about moral imperative, you know, we really have to look out for each other here um, and come on, like kind of like uh, design a future that's best for, for all. Yeah. yeah. And I'll point out, I'll just add really quickly to what uh, Dr. Walworth said. I mean, you know, record uh, crop failures in uh, Guatemala and uh, a prolonged drought in Syria are absolutely responsible for huge numbers of refugees from both countries coming. So you're, you're right. We, we are seeing what this looks like. It's going to look even diff more different when those aren't just like local, when those aren't localized to a small area, but when those are in fact localized to when they're in like an entire continent. Okay, let's go um, to the other side of the Mediterranean, shall we, and talk about Athens' chief heat officer. Yeah, so continuing on the topic of chief heat officer, um, Athens, Greece is no exception to experiencing the challenge of ex uh, challenges of extreme heat. A uh, 2019 analysis by Newcastle University a Polytechnic School in the UK ranked Athens as the European city facing the greatest impact from heat waves. In the summer of 2021, Greece experienced the worst heat wave in decades, causing temperatures to soar to 46.3 degrees Celsius, which is 115 Fahrenheit, and sparking over 140 wildfires. 
Greece recorded over 2,300 excess deaths, including deaths from COVID-19, between late July and mid-August compared with the last five years, including around 1,400 excess deaths <clears throat> Sorry, in the first week of August alone. It's getting so bad that officials in Greece are thinking of naming and ranking heat waves just like they already do for storms and cyclones. And this is why former Deputy Mayor of Athens, Eleni Miravili, advisor and senior fellow for resilience at the Atlantic Council, um, Arch Rockefeller Resilience Center and advisor to the mayor of Athens in Europe, is Europe's uh, first chief heat officer. Athens is part of a 100 Resilient Cities program, which aims to improve sustainability and support citizens' well-being. The Athens Climate Change Adaption Plan also is a strategy of 29 actions to improve Athens' response to rising temperatures. Um, this is borrowed from Sydney, Australia's policy, uh, and Miravilli hopes that the plan will grow awareness of the dangers of the silent killer that is heat waves, creating a comprehensive plan to regrain urban areas. She also plans to restore the ancient um, Hadrian uh, aqueduct to redistribute water flow and plant trees across Athens, as well as create a quote, common language, common discourse, and a common sense of goals and visions for Athens. And that definitely touches on your point, Dr. Walworth, uh, that you mentioned earlier, just about language and how that needs to evolve, you know, uh, as the very real issues here continue to evolve we need to adapt with it and learn how to communicate about it. Um, so I also want to ask you my question. Um, so Mayor really says that the success of her vision will greatly depend on someone really putting in the effort and putting in the legwork to pull everyone together. Um, do you think initiatives like this one or, or ones aiming to solve climate issues at a national level uh, can afford to rely on community driven impact? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to see, um, you know, executive levels be, uh, beginning to really spotlight uh, community and sort of grassroots movements in a way that um, is almost, you know, required. And yeah, I mean, I, I think we're getting to the point where, you know, it's it's all hands on deck and and especially in, um, in the sense of, you know, having, you know, trying to get uh, society at large on, on board and, and sort of part of the same team for, for lack of a better and so, yeah, in, you know, in some of our projects um, where we're implementing environmental projects in coastal communities, um, our, our first thing is, is to really do community engagement and, and inclusion and, and make sure that, you know, their voices are heard in every step of our, our process. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think what a lot of potential climate technologists are, are forgetting is that, um, you know, people in mass can stop your projects if, if they don't agree with you. And, um, you know, it's, it, it's critical, actually, to, to be inclusive at this point, um, because, you know, enough, enough protests or, or enough confusion um, by the broader public um, will, will actually, um, is actually part of your technological development process. And then, and then just in general, um, you know, it's something that we need and, and was the source in, of uh, climate change in the first place was just a lot of these um, inequities. And so really yeah. leading with that lens is, is going to be critical, I think. Yeah, um, so I, we've looked at the at the existence of the role, right? And I think it is really I, it is fascinating to see the idea that like wealthy cities uh, in um, you know uh, the in, in the global north and even one in the global south are, are sort of thinking about this. But I wanted to apply 
the sense of what the chief heat officer is because we we know they have to be adept politicos. We know as as we've discussed, they have to be pretty solid at PR. But I'm curious about a couple of different economic, uh, a couple of different environmental things going on and, and how they might fit in there. So I want to start here with this idea of green skilling. I don't know if we've ever discussed this on the briefing, but it is sort of this idea that much like de-skilling or reskilling that we need to get better at being green, right? Um, that might be a really important role for that chief heat officer. So real quick here, a new study from the Social Market Foundation in the UK warns of an urgent need for both public and private organizations to recruit and train an army of plumbers to deliver the UK's goal to convert far more environment uh, to, uh, to far more uh, environmentally friendly heat pumps. We've talked about heat pumps before. They're much better for the environment than air conditioners and than like central AC and uh, they are uh, pretty cheap and effective. You don't really need air conditioning. You didn't used to need air conditioning in England uh, and the UK, but uh, increasingly you're going to as things get hotter. Uh, now, the, the issue here is essentially not that we can't produce these or not that the, the value isn't there or people are unwilling to switch, um, but that we just don't have enough people who have the skills to install these to make a major effort. And what this report is suggesting um, is that if we're going to switch over to number of the UK's goals uh, in, in sustainable building by 2025, we, need, we simply need more people who are able, who are green skilled enough uh, to put in these critical pieces of infrastructure to deal with heat going forward. Quote, energy bills are rising because we're far too reliant on imported gas bought on international markets where prices are soaring, one of the uh, authors, uh, report, uh, writers said. Um, taking gas out of home heating uh, and, cool, and you know, electricity out of home cooling will help reduce uh, that demand and protect households uh, from this volatility. So plumbers and installers involved will be doing a great service to the country. They may be able to expect a lordship out of this or something. Okay, um, let's, uh, and I guess the, the big question here is, um, you know, while the, while the report doesn't speak directly about the chief heat officer, um, I, I do wonder what role they might play in the con in, in sort of the context here. So Carrera, let me bring you in. I mean, you know, obviously it's different if we're thinking about uh, a, a government, like say the UK government here, but if we want to install more heat pumps, we want to install more energy efficient cooling, um, is this the kind of role for the chief heat officer uh, of say Home Depot and Lowe's? Uh, and do they need to seriously look at creating that position uh, if, if we're going to reach goals like this? Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, for these companies, they're going to be needing to pay attention to a future of consumer needs. And as a homeowner, you're going to be kind of worried about how high your air conditioning and your cooling bills are getting. You might go to Home Depot looking for uh, white paint that Purdue University made that reflects 98% of all heat for your roof. You might want you know, yeah. different things that go on your windows that reflect heat. Um, and I think that the market's gonna be huge and that absolutely these uh, companies should be paying attention to this and hiring roles that are on top of this. Yeah, solid opportunity to sell some trees and some shrubbery to cool things down and suck some carbon out of the atmosphere. Okay, let's look at another example of this because this is where, Dr. Wall, I'd love you to weigh in on this one because I saw this and I'm, I, I have some questions. Okay, so one uh, big question of all this eco-focused business bet coverage we've done is how to scale impact, right? Does my skipping, does my no longer eating beef really have a major impact on say a planetary carbon issue, right? So in this signal, we see just one way in which a company culture might evolve to make a small impact on stop climate change. The Toronto Star reports uh, that moving uh, meetings and conferences to fully online could reduce the carbon footprint of a, you know, the, the average corporate conference by 94%. 
the reduction largely comes from removing transport from the equation. The piece notes that since the on, uh, uh, onset of the pandemic in 2020, that organizers and companies have obviously gotten much better about doing these things virtually. But as things as the immediate pandemic emergency recedes, there are questions about if we're going to come together in, in big face-to-face -face conferences again. Uh, now, uh, the, the group that found this 94% uh, data point uh, looked at a number of conferences from the American Center of Life Cycle Assignment, uh, their conferences, and sort of calculated the different ways in which changing how the conference function could lower the carbon footprint of the conference. Of course, my question here a little bit is like, does the chief heat officer come in here? Do they have a role to play in thinking uh, uh, about this? Um, would they be stepping on the toes of say the chief sustainability officer? But I also wanna bring it back to this question of impact, right? Like, you know, there is a real value to face-to-face -face meeting with each other. And, and the question is if, you know, flying a couple hundred people over to, you know, uh, some corporate uh, convention center somewhere in, I don't know, San Diego for a face-to-face -face meeting, if that's, you know, if that's the kind of carbon impact we need to think about, or if it's more like no, you know, just <laughs> tearing down every coal-fired power plant uh, in, on this planet. So I guess I'd like to start with you here, Dr. Walworth. Is this kind of data, is this the kind of thing that, that, that the chief heat officer needs to pay attention to? Is this too small or is it like any positive impact on the carbon we put out will uh, have, we'll have some sort of positive impact uh, on, on mitigating extreme heat? Yeah, no, this, this is a great um, topic of discussion because, you know, on one hand, you know, let's say, you know, people's behavior change or companies, um, you know, it, it sends some good cultural signals that the market is shifting and sort of as Quera said that that's, that's necessary in, in order um, for companies, you know, in, in mass to, to begin to move, um, you know, in that direction. And then at the same time, you know, we, we know that the vast majority of carbon emissions come from just several companies and, you know, that that typically isn't in headlines and it's not our area of focus. And there have been great uh, you know, media campaigns to make sure it's not our area of focus. So, you know, I think at the same time, if we want if we're just talking talking more technically about carbon, um, the government and, and policy has, has a major role to play in order to create incentives for companies to actually do that. And I'd say that the, one of the best cases in point was um, how Tesla you know, turned profitable because uh, California passed. Um, a law that said, you know, car companies had to issue a certain amount of um, electric vehicles, no one could meet it. Yeah. And so Tesla started to just issue their credits to all the other companies and, and uh, came into the black. And so it's a great example of how um, incentives at, uh, at the highest level need to change in order for companies to see that signal as well. Yeah. Um, Carrera, let me ask you real quick here as we move into our final signal. Like, are, are, or should we start to expect turf wars between the chief sustainability officer and the chief, chief, chief heat, heat officer? How do they play nicely in sort of the corporate world of the future? Yeah, absolutely. I do wonder just as a citizen, what would be the domain of uh, an environmental officer and how that wouldn't be the heat officer? I think maybe um, just to raise awareness around this huge issue of, of heat, the this, you know, the publicizing of a chief heat officer um, is a good move just to say like, hey, we are taking this into consideration and we're taking it seriously. Yeah. So for that reason, I'd say, yeah, let's have both. <laughs> All right, yeah, all hands on deck situation, right? All right, hey, speaking of leadership, let's talk about uh, climate leadership. Debbie, take us through our final signal. 
Yeah, so tackling climate change is an urgent matter, as we've all learned and know. Uh, the effects of extreme heat waves and rainfall have been demonstrated by fires and floods in locations as diverse as Turkey and Canada or China and Germany. Uh, swift action is therefore needed to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and thereby limit global uh, temperature rises to 2 Celsius or uh, preferably 1.5 degrees Celsius compared to uh, pre-industrial levels. Um, and given, given that growing urgency, investors increasingly want to ensure that their assets are invested in strateg strategies consistent with achieving rapid decarbonization. The Schroeder's Institute, Institutional Investor Survey for 2021 found that climate risk was a primary factor influencing investment for 21% of institutional investors compared to just 8% in 2020. Now, what does this mean for companies? Well, by decarbonizing their businesses, including their supply chains ahead of competitors, climate leaders minimize their risk in a scenario of more aggressive government and societal action to regulate, tax, and price greenhouse gas emissions. And how does Schroeder's uh, find and find these companies? Well, firstly, they institute, the Institute screens the universe of global stocks for companies who have an emissions reduction target consistent with an 80% reduction uh, in emissions intensity by 2030. Emission intensity is the volume of emissions per unit of output. It considers companies to be climate leaders if their emissions reduction target is less than 80%, but Crucially, they are aiming for an emissions intensity of 80% less than the regional sector average. One example of a climate leader is Microsoft. It's targeting using 100% renewable energy by 2025, and it is also uh, committed to be water positive, which is super important, by 2030. Um, they all, they've also committed to be certified uh, zero waste by 2030, as well as achieve net zero deforestation and new construction. Now, how will they do all this? One tool is the creation of an internal carbon tax that each Microsoft division has to pay based on the amount of carbon it emits. That already covers scope one and two emissions, but from this year, scope three will be included too. And the tax incentivizes each division to pay attention to its emissions and seek to reduce them. Here, the opportunity emerging for investors is outlined for those companies who are taking seriously their responsibility to decarbonize. As society and po uh, policymakers pivot towards penalizing inactivity and rewarding the companies that support tackling climate change, these investments can create value. So Dr. Walworth, um, I know that you've, you are pretty well-versed in this. I just wanna ask at a, high level, what is the big loss for companies that are slow to adopt decarbonization? And what is, on the flip side, what is the opportunity for attracting new client or, or new talent, investors, and clients? Yeah, so, you know, I would say, you know, one big loss, of course, is, um, you know, if you look at uh, a lot of market and sentiment data, you know, younger generations are putting front and center um, their desire to support um you know the the change that the world needs to see whether it be on the social or the environmental side and if a company doesn't stand for um that type of um that mission then um you know i would say you know they're missing out on, on that talent at the same time on the market side um it's it's the same thing the uh, the trends are going that way um so i think i think companies pretty much you know have 
not only a responsibility, but now kind of a financial incentive and an economic incentive um, to, to move over. And, you know, uh, you know, if that's, if that's what they need, then, um, then so be it. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think generally speaking, positioning wise, um, they'll, they're going to have to move this way either way. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, you know, we, we chose this headline in part because uh, there are lots of different metrics for what it means to be a climate leader. You could be a chief heat, you could be a chief heat officer, you'd be a chief environmental officer. You could, uh, as Devery was saying, look at uh, how you make your investments. And I, I think what ultimately it comes down to is an understanding that um, climate change is not something that you have to, uh, that you can bolt on to an organization uh, and, and taking that into account. It's something that has to be really, really built in and that organizations that figure this out are not only going to do better as the investors here think, um, but also I just love the idea that there's no such thing as as um, as scale to this, as we were saying. You know, a small organization, two, three people company can provide leadership. A gigantic company like Microsoft can provide leadership. We just need everybody rowing in the same direction, regardless of size. Um, I wanted to highlight one really silly article here from the New York Times um, about Val you know Valentine's Day is coming up. I don't know if you're looking for a gift. I suppose. President's Day is also coming up if you're looking for a weird gift. But the New York Times style section is reporting, is profiling Love Cloud, a new service that for $995 will fly you and a partner in a private airplane for 45 minutes so that you can do whatever you and your partner choose to do in a uh, an airplane by yourselves with no one peeking. Uh, granted, you are free to use the time as you wish. You could play backgammon, I suppose, but the door is locked and no questions are asked. Quote, you can also pay uh, $1,200 uh, to get married on board if you wanted. For an extra $100, you could book a one course meal. I don't know what that is. Uh, for $1,600, you could get three courses. And with any uh, package, an extra $300 will get you a bottle of bubbly uh, and a ride uh, to the tarmac on a limousine. Um, according to Andy Johnson, uh, the pilot and co-founder of Love Cloud, it is the Mile High Club flight, uh, which comes with a commemorative membership card that you should never show anyone because that is uh that's pretty lame um quote you arrive with a smile on your face and you leave with an even bigger smile on your face mr johnson told uh the new york times this is obviously based in las vegas i don't i, I don't know if i had to make that clear um i wanted to bring this up because this is not exactly environmentally responsible uh we think about the singapore airlines flight that just like circled above uh singapore so that people could enjoy being on a plane during the pandemic Unnecessary plane rides that don't end in you doing any kind of destination are probably not worth it. And besides, if you really want to get screwed on an airplane, try flying a standby on Spirit Airlines. That's going to take us through the briefing for the day. A big shout out to Dr. Nathan Waller. Thank you so much for joining us to discuss this really interesting topic. A big shout out as well to Carrera and Devery for, uh, for their comments here. Thank you for joining and join us Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday on our LinkedIn page. While you're there, jump in the comment section. Let us know what you're thinking, your thoughts on this new position. We'd love to hear it. Tomorrow, we have a very special briefing. Davion Harris, our chief client officer and our DEI practice lead is gonna kick off with Devry, our, uh, our, our Black History Month series. You've got a couple different things coming up in the month of February. Uh, Devry, what is the topic for that one? The future of health equity. The future of health equity. We've got some very cool guests. It's gonna be a really interesting conversation. I look forward to tuning in uh, to it. So you should as well. Uh, if you're interested in Q, our cultural intelligence platform we use to build today and every day's briefings, please feel free to reach out for a demo. We would love to give you one. So until next time, consider yourselves briefed. Mm -hmm.